My sermon today is from a familiar passage in the Bible. Perhaps if you did a survey asking people on the streets who are natives of this land and have had some degree of exposure to the Bible and to the outreach of churches, what is the most familiar passage in the Old Testament to you? They most likely would respond to the 23rd Psalm. That particular passage is the one I want to deal with today, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and trust it will be a blessing to you. Open your Bible to that passage at Psalm 23. Not long ago, my mother at age 96, having been in the assisted living for a period of time, after being so active and so strong for so many years, took to her deathbed. We lived at that time uh, a short distance away and came to see her often, of course. And as she declined and got closer to the passing over moment, I stood by her bedside. And I quoted to her the 23rd Psalm. And she was only able to speak uh, at the level of a whisper. And so I leaned over close to her after I quoted the song. And she said several times over, I shall not want. I shall not want. And so I, in honor of her today, who was actually the first Christian in our immediate family circle, when I was a little boy, I had never been to church by the time I was about nine years old. We didn't know anything about church except there was a church house here and there. We were unchurched people. Into our neighborhood on Saturdays came a layman, not a trained theologian, not an ordained minister, not an evangelist or a pastor, just a day laborer carpenter by trade. He'd go out in our neighborhoods on Saturday and go door to door, knocking on doors. They still had bad dogs there in Mississippi back in those days. He wouldn't let a biting dog hold him back. He'd come knock on the door anyhow and had sort of a mesmerizing effect on dangerous dogs. Because I don't ever remember him being bitten even by the bad dog that we had. And he came to our home, knocked on the door, and knocked on the door Saturday after Saturday. My daddy is way off from us in the military overseas. It's just my mom and myself there. And we didn't have a car. And we didn't have to <coughs> go anyplace much. And when we did go, we had to sort of thumb or bum a ride, you see. But on that particular weekend, I never shall forget, my mama said to him, Mr. Crawford, that was his last name. If you'll come by next Saturday, the boy and I will ride with you. And the next Saturday, we got in an old Ford Woody station wagon. And some of you car fellows remember the nostalgia of the old days of the 40s and 50s when Ford made a Woody wagon. We barely could get in it. It was so full of people. 
We rode to a church and heard for the first time, I did, the good news that Jesus could make a difference in your life. And so in time to come in that church, we settled in. And I grew up as a boy. And in that church, my mother labored for years teaching the, as she termed it, little folks class. There's all size of little folks. All ages of little folks. And she took uh, great patience with them. Uh, there's some uh, <coughs> urchin kind of kids in some cases. And they wasn't hard, uh, they wasn't too easy to handle. But mama had the gentle touch. And the firm, easy hand. And she could take care of them Sunday by Sunday in that class. Never will forget when we get back home from church and got done with the Sunday meal, uh, she'd sit right in to get ready for the next Sunday. Get out her little old lesson cards and her stuff for the flannel graph and all the other little stuff she used in the class. And that was uh, how serious she was about teaching those children. And she did that for many, many, many years to come. And so uh, being the first Christian influence in our immediate family, I wanted to use what I heard my mama say for a last time as my sermon topic today. I shall not want. Now look with me in your Bible at the 23rd Psalm, and I'll talk as long as I can. Notice with me, first of all, the unique location of this particular psalm. You don't have to be a mathematical genius to designate the location of it as to the sequence of numbers. You have Psalm 22, and then you have Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. Now if you look at Psalm 22, it is an amazing psalm of prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who know the Bible in its entirety as to the sequence of events and the use of prophecy in the Old Testament as it appears in the New Testament tell us that the 23rd Psalm was quoted in the New Testament more than any other psalm in the entire group of psalms because it tells much about Jesus' experience when he was on the cross. Thus I say to you today, Psalm 22 is about Mount Calvary, where Jesus suffered and died. Look at the first verse, which is a question. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther stepped outside his study after a long day of perusing the Scriptures, dwelling particularly on this question. Now in the open, uh, with his hand raised skyward, he said, God, forsaken of God, who could ever understand that? You know what happened when Jesus made that cry on the cross. It was the middle of the seven cries. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you know what was happening during that period of time? Jesus was experiencing within himself, within the capacity of his eternal being, an equivalency of what all people will ever know who are condemned eternally to hell. 
Ross prayed today about Jesus taking upon himself the suffering of our hell. Do you know Jesus being God was infinite in his capacity? He was not mere man limited to time and origin. He was God having no origin at all. And as God being infinite or eternal in his ability or capacity, he took within his soul in a matter of time an eternal equivalency of everlasting hell. That's why on the cross he cried, Why hast thou forsaken me? And when that happened, the sun stopped shining that day. The earth began to quiver and quake beneath the feet of men. And in the temple of old Jerusalem, the mighty veil of the temple that warded off the holy place was split asunder, opening redemption's plan for fallen mankind. Here it is prophesied in Psalm 22. Look down at verse 7. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. That's what they said as they skirted round about uh, the foot of Jesus' cross. They made fun of him. They ridiculed him. They suggested if he be truly God, why does he not remove himself from the cross? Why does he not deliver himself? They laughed him to scorn. Look down at verse 14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. One of the agonies of crucifixion was the dislocation of the joints of the skeletal frame. When Jesus was hanging there, his shoulder joints uh, were in excruciating, unimaginable pain as the weight of his body uh, would be pulling downward uh, on those tender joints. When the soldier came with spear and round that sharpened instrument of torture into his chest cavity, gushing forth came the blood and water. Here prophesied in Psalm 22. Verse 16, For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. Then notice the last statement of verse 16, They pierced my hands and my feet. Do you know the Romans... Um, used crucifixions as a means of capital punishment before other societies and despotic uh, rulers had ever done. They particularly used crucifixion to kill criminals. And in securing the criminal to the cross, they would nail their hands and feet to the beam. And right here in the Bible, hundreds of years before it ever happened, God portrayed it uh, in Psalm 22. Then look at verse 18. They parted my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. What did the soldiers do about Jesus' seamless robe? They gambled for the possession of it. It's right here in the Bible, long before it ever transpired, the gambling for Jesus' garments was prophesied. So there in Psalm 22, Jesus is dying. On Mount Calvary, suffering as our Savior, taking upon Himself all our guilt, sin, blame, and shame, that we through that might be forgiven and redeemed. 
Over in verse, over in chapter 24 is a different story. <clears throat> For here Jesus is a king. It says in uh, verse 7 through the end of the chapter that he is the king of glory coming in. We're to lift up our hands and our heads and acknowledge him and praise him as the king who is the Lord of hosts as well as king of glory. So what I'm trying to point out to you is this interesting, if not blessed, uh, sequence of Bible chapters here. <clears throat> that you have Mount Calvary where he died. You have Mount Zion where he reigned someday. And then between the two is the valley of the shadow of death where he is the kind shepherd leads us safely through to the other side. Now it says in verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. <clears throat> That's a great statement of contrast, a distinct contrast. Now the Lord speaks of him being above us and beyond us, the Almighty. The name shepherd speaks of him being near us, of him being eminent, of him being human, of him being close at hand. The Lord is my shepherd. That makes it a personal relationship. In a setting in a college one day, <clears throat> in a drama class, the students were called on to quote the 23rd Psalm. Their most talented orator stood and did so. He quoted the 23rd Psalm with such articulate distinction of words that the audience was so moved, the class was so challenged, they began to cheer and applaud for that delivery of the 23rd Psalm. In that setting was an aged, uh, semi-retired preacher on the teaching staff, and they asked him to quote the 23rd Psalm, and he did so. And when he was done, having done so with such pathos and soul, they did not cheer, they bowed their heads reverently and cried, and somebody asked, what was the difference between the young orator giving it so dramatically and so dynamically and the old preacher giving it with such fervency? Somebody said, the only thing I can say is the young orator knew the psalm and he gave it well, but the old preacher knew the shepherd of the psalm. That must have made all the difference. When everything's said and done, it's not whether or not you know and can even quote the 23rd Psalm. It's whether or not you can say, by having been saved by him, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It says in verse 2, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He uh, insisted the sheep lie down. Some of you commentators believe if the shepherd did not force them to rest, they would be so uh, overfilled with eat, <laughs> eating the green grass, <coughs> they'd have uh, digestive problems as a result, if not even being fatal for them. You're never so busy by what God may slow you down. He has slowed us down through the COVID. Yeah, he has. He slowed us down through changes on the job situation. He slowed us down because we have to readjust our family situation. 
Because uh, if you're not careful, you'll be so healthy and so vibrant and so involved and so busy that you run past praying. I'll tell you what I found out you can do on the sick bed, especially in the ICU section of the hospital. You can really, really, really catch up on your praying. Because that's about all you got to do is try to breathe and pray. Yeah. Because you sure don't want to eat, son. <laughs> I lost 30 pounds in 30 days, a pound a day. If I'd get me a patent on that, I'd go into the diet business. Huh? <clears throat> but I'd be fearful of too many lawsuits from the losses of life in the process. He made the sheep lie down in the green pastures and take a break, even though they'd like to just keep right on eating, right on doing what they enjoyed most of all doing. Then he says, He leadeth me beside the still waters. He does not drive the sheep from behind. He leads them out front. I held a meeting one time out in the hills of Missouri. The family Miss Santa and I stayed with were sheep farmers. And we learned a little bit more about the sheep. The sheep are very uh, directionless animals. Unless the shepherd leads them, they get lost. Sheep are very dirty animals. Unless the shepherd uh, cleans them, uh, they'll keep on collecting uh, debris and dirt. And the sheep are very dumb animals. Uh, you can teach a horse, you know. And uh, We was up at uh, Pigeon Forge not long ago, and they had taught a seal to almost talk like a human being. I know you could teach a seal to do that kind of stuff, especially them being out of the water. So if you can teach a seal to... <clears throat> bark in sequence and a and a horse or a, a dog to respond to commands uh, you think all animals could do that no no not a sheep uh, they're too ignorant to be taught uh, so it says here they have to be led and it's not a broad path it is a beaten familiar trail and it's one of righteousness right standing and right living Here's the thing. Uh, we as Christians uh, in our walk with God will never be led to do something wrong. Somebody says, uh, God led me to do thus and so. What they're talking about doing is something that's contrary to God's morality. Ooh. God didn't lead them to do that. They walking in contrary <coughs> attitude to God's uh, directing, you see. He leads us in paths of righteousness, right living. Then he says in verse 3, he restoreth my soul. I've tried to look up that word restoreth in the word study books. It is the idea sometimes a sheep would stumble and fall and because they were heavy in their wool with collected debris, they'd roll over on their side and get to wobbling and kicking around. And the first, <laughs> the first thing you know, they'd be up on their back with nothing but their legs up in the air. There's like a turtle. Uh-huh. And old shepherd had come along and he had set them upright. He'd keep them uh, from staying down. You ever need to be set upright in your life? When you got overloaded, uh, stumbled, and fell under the load? And Jesus says, I'll restore you. I'll give you a place to stand again. Yeah. 
It's never too late to start over if you let Jesus pick you up and make you stand uh, upright. So he uh, restoreth the fallen. He leadeth me in the paths. I'm sorry. Let me I skip one. I won't let me go back. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Now let me get your idea back up to verse 2. Uh, I didn't know this about a sheep until the sheep folks told me. And I looked at a sheep right close. A sheep's nose, their nostrils, and their mouth are right close together like that. They look just about like that. That's why the water, listen to me now, the water has to be smooth for them to drink without getting strangled. What about it? So what the shepherd would do, he'd find a, a, an eddy place, a smooth place in the brook. Or he would even dam up part of the brook and get the water backed up, but it's smooth, placid like that, you see. Then he'd lead them down edgewise to the brook and let them drink to their satisfaction. So God, in the everyday activities of life, the routines of living, He keeps us safe and still. Now the scene changes in verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You can't avoid the valleys of life. The Bible says, man that is born of woman, that's every man, is a few days and full of trouble. Hey. If old Mr. Trouble hadn't paid you a visit, uh, hold on, he's on the way. Whatever kind of trouble it is, you can uh, identify it when it happens usually because it will disrupt your progress. Trouble is part of life's journey. It's like leaving the sunshine and going into a dark valley. Now listen, it says here, I'll walk through the valley. You know one of the worst things you can do is get in too big of a hurry. You hurt yourself and somebody else if you get in too big of a hurry. Huh? It says you need to walk instead of run sometimes. That doesn't mean you meet, it doesn't mean you it doesn't mean you need to back up. Doesn't mean you need to walk backwards, right? You need to keep on uh, looking ahead and when you can walking ahead. Now look at the word in that verse. Though I walk through the valley. What does that mean? That means the valley is not the end of the journey. It's just part of it. Right? <laughs> it's just a temporary detour till you get to the other side. You're walking through the valley and, and there are some shadows round about. And it says the shadow. Now death is here referred to as a shadow. A shadow can't hurt you. I'll tell you what it'll do. It'll make you hurt yourself if you're not careful. Uh, if you're not careful, you'll uh, get hurt when you didn't mean to. Because something that couldn't hurt you after all is what you let hurt you by being afraid of it. A death is uh, on our schedule unless we get raptured as believers and don't have to die. But um, when death comes, you don't have to be afraid as a Christian. They said about the early Christians when they're killing them in the arenas and letting them be burned as torches and eaten by lions and massacred in so cruel a manner. The Roman emperor said, these Christians do die very well. So if you want to die well, you need to walk well. So when the last step is made, 
You can make it easy as you cross over. I'll tell you this. I doesn't say it eliminates altogether the fear you might have or the pain you experience through suffering of health loss or what have you. You may not be completely shouting for joy and clicking your heels about the thought of dying. But what I believe is if you'll do God's will while you're living, He'll provide the grace to absolve your fears when it comes time to do the dying. So you don't have to worry about it now because when it comes time to do it, He's promised to provide the grace to absolve the fear. You don't have to worry about it. He says, I fear no evil because thou art with me. Jesus, the shepherd, is there. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now the rod's not a hot rod, not an automobile, if you wondered about that. A rod was a club. The shepherd carried a club. And in that valley, if a lion jumped out, he got the club. If a bandit came out trying to steal the sheep, he got the club. He got the rod. The staff was a crooked instrument, you remember you in the pictures of them, that was used for counting the sheep with one end, and the hooped end was used to rescue the fallen sheep with the other end. So the sheep knew they had the shepherd there, and he had the club and the rod and the staff, so everything's going to be all right. Then he says, Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Now, I've had a hard time understanding that for a while until I got thinking about it. The sheep's table was the open pasture land where they ate, where they grazed. In that field, uh, down in dens, would be venomous reptiles, they say. And these uh, snakes, these reptiles, these serpents, these scorpions even, would be down in those holes in the ground. And when the sheep would come there grazing, whoop! Out of that hole they'd come with a venomous bite right on the face or nose of the sheep and is dead. So what the shepherd would do would go in there and he would uh, fool, he would make safe the eating area. And he'd go in there and just uh, take some dirt and plug the hole of a snake. So the, <laughs> you got it? So the sheep could eat without having to be worried about snake biting them. You know what? You and I can't imagine how many times God plugged the hole of a snake before we got there. He protected us ahead of time because we'd never know the danger was in unless we knew that our shepherd, our Savior, was there avoiding our hurt by preventing it ahead of time. Now then, let me get on done. The known as my with all this was the idea of the sheep being uh, medicated when they had cuts or tires in their face or flesh, he had healing oil. My cup running over is the idea. They say when the shepherds uh, had a fellow shepherd uh, tending their flock in the next pasture over, and it came end of day, and they wanted to have a little fellowship, this shepherd would invite that shepherd from his flock to come over here and sit down for a meal. And at the end of the meal, if the host shepherd felt like he wanted that guy to come back again, he'd fill up his cup and run it over. And that overflowing cup was a testimonial to that visitor 
that he was glad, uh, the host was glad he came. And he's welcome to come back anytime. <laughs> the Holy Spirit of God is the all of God in our souls. And every once in a while, your cup will flow over. That's Jesus reminding you that he's glad you came. He's so glad that you're part of his family. And you can fellowship with him all the time, anytime you want to. Right? How about it? Well, let me wind it down. Verse 6 talks about two things, this life and the life to come. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Some folks believe that was the name of two sheepdogs, goodness and mercy. They stayed nipping at the heels of the sheep to keep them from going astray. You'll not go astray if you'll dwell on God's goodness and if you'll rest in God's mercy all the days of your journey. Then the final chapter says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A shepherd didn't dwell anywhere. He was on the move. Likewise, we're transit. We're pilgrims. We're just passing through. This is not our home. Then it says, I'll dwell in the house. The shepherd didn't have a house. You know what his roof was? The sky or a tent or a brush arbor or the overcliff of a rock. He didn't have a house. And he certainly didn't live in one place for long. He had to move from one place to the other. But it says, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me give you this. Our time may run out before I get done. I'm trying to give Devin a little competition here on the time. Uh, let me give you this because this is good for a close. One of the most noted uh, biblical uh, apologists and scientists, Dr. Harry Rimmer. This is one of probably 25, 30 books he wrote. Modern Science and the Genesis Record. He's of an earlier generation, of course. Let me give you this, and I'll close. The late Harry Rimmer penned the following letter to Charles E. Fuller of the old-fashioned Revival Hour broadcast shortly before his death, before Rimmer's death. This is what he said. Next Sunday, you're to talk about heaven. I'm interested in that land because I've held a clear title to a bit of property there for over 50 years. I did not buy it. It was given to me without money and without price, but the donor purchased it for me at a tremendous sacrifice. I'm not holding it for speculation. It is not a vacant lot. For more than half a century, I've been sending materials out of which the greatest architect of the universe has been building a home for me which will never need remodeling or repairs because it will suit me perfectly, individually, and never grow old. Termites can never undermine its foundation for its rest upon the rock of ages. Fire cannot destroy it. Floods cannot wash it away. No locker bolts will ever be placed upon its doors for no, no vicious person can ever enter that land where my dwelling stands. Now almost completed and almost ready for me to enter in and abide in peace eternally without fear of being rejected. There is a valley of deep shadow between this place where I live and that to which I shall journey. In a very short time, I cannot reach my home in that city without passing through this valley. But I'm not afraid because the best friend I ever had went through the same valley long, long ago and drove away all of his gloom. 
He stuck with me through thick and thin since we first became acquainted 55 years ago. And I held his promise in printed form never to forsake me or leave me alone. He will be with me as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And I shall not lose my way because he is with me. I hope to hear your sermon on the radio next Sunday, the one on heaven. But I have no assurance I shall be able to do so. My ticket to heaven has no date marked for the journey, no return coupon, nor permit for baggage. Yes, I'm ready to go, and I may not be here while you're talking next Sunday evening, but I will meet you there someday. And dear Lord Jesus, sure has, sure has been a journey. <laughs> 